0: you can come whatever ca- uh, questions you have but because it is being recorded and it'll be put on um, on the internet so you have to ask your questions on the mic here microphone here you have to come forward and sit and ask the question and tell us your name please come tell me your name and then what is the question
1: my name is madhu subbu Um, My question
0: is, how can I learn to focus my mind in a busy and loud city like New York? Mm -hmm. Um, Is it...
1: we talked about uh, Asparsha Yoga Mm. uh, versus turning off the movie. Mm. Now, in
0: an environment like New York, what is easier? Is it Asparsha or is it... Yes, that's a good question. An environment like Manhattan doesn't get any busier than this. and The city that never sleeps? Yeah. Yes. Come, come. You sit here. She'll sit there. Come sit
1: there.
0: How do we focus our minds? This focus of the mind is actually very important for success in the world and in spiritual life also. Swami Vivekananda said, the difference between an ordinary person and a great person lies in the degree of concentration. And he himself had extraordinary powers of concentration. So, focus of the mind is necessary for for anything and everything in life. Now, The yogic approach, the Raja Yoga or Patanjali Yoga approach, that is the science of concentration par excellence. Mm. In fact, in modern positive psychology they have studied this focus of mind concentration. One psychologist said that the quality of your life Mm. depends on how much you can concentrate and what you concentrate on. Not just how much you can concentrate, what you concentrate on. Um, Actually, this lady who wrote the book, RAPT, R-A-P-T, RAPT, she's talking about a cancer patient who uh, suffered a lot and decided that she would not um, uh, keep her mind on suffering anymore because it's inevitable that suffering is going to come. Rather, she's going to devote her mind to her uh, art Mm. uh, or writing, I think. And as she learned to do that, she found the quality of her life became better. In fact, subjectively, she was happier than, when she, than before cancer. So she says that, um, what you think about? So am I thinking about my uh, writing and art or am I thinking about uh, the pain and the cancer and the co-payments mm. and, and so on? Uh, what am I thinking of? Where do I put my mind? And how much of the mind I can put on that? Milton said in Paradise Lost, the mind in its own place can make a heaven of hell and a hell of heaven. So, it has been studied. A classic book in this regard is Mihai Mihaly Mihai's Flow. You are aware of that book? Yeah. So, he has studied this phenomenon of attention and its link with the quality of life. And in fact, he mentions Patanjali Yoga there. Mm. He says, The best methodology that I have seen for for, uh, attainment of flow is in this ancient technique of uh, Patanjali Yoga. Am I audible to everybody? So that's one method by by Patanjali Yoga. Mm. That's the method of concentration, where you train your mind to think of one thing, and keep on excluding everything else, bringing your mind back to again, that thing again and again. And there is a whole science in it. In fact, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi there, there, he points it out, that it is basically a function of two things. One is the challenge posed by the environment, and the other is your skill. It is, um, he gives an example. Suppose you are playing tennis. When you begin to play tennis, it is a great thing just to return a serve. So, all your energies and your concentration, focus, you are all aroused and ready to face the challenge and if you are able to return the serve, that is, you attain flow there. But that flow point, it's a match between the challenge and your skills. Your skill is exactly up to that level. But then this point of flow is dynamic. After some time what happens is, if you keep just returning a serve, it becomes boring after some time because your skill has now exceeded the challenge now you need to up the challenge. So maybe you need to play a game. Then you maybe need to play a a game against a good player and so on. So um, this flow, focus is a question of challenge and skill. Too much challenge like in a workplace which is full of pressure you many people know in Manhattan it's like that. Then uh, if your skill, your capacity is below the level of challenge it leads to anxiety. Uneasiness, anxiety, strain, if the challenge is way below your skills, it leads to boredom, if they are well balanced at that point you get flow, focus what you are asking. What does that mean practically? Practically what it means is that if you want focus and flow you need to increase the challenge to meet your abilities. If the challenge is beyond your abilities, the environment is putting too much pressure on your uh, abilities then you need to break it down into smaller chunks and deal with it one at a time, a little bit at a time, manageable bits at a time. That's in principle. It's easier said than done. But there are other things to consider also in focus. One thing is, one one thing which scatters our minds is self-interest. If I am in it for myself, if my idea is that I am in it for this particular person, then always I'll be tense. What have I gained? What have I lost? How much do I get out of this? I'm not relaxed anymore. Selfishness leads to a scattered mind. It can lead to a kind of narrow focus on my own interests, but always it'll be vulnerable and you're open to anxiety and fear and um, frustration. Unselfishness. The unselfish mind is relaxed mind. So the more you are about doing good to the organization you work for, the family unit you are with, or the community, or in general for others, you are relaxed about yourself. Or you are worshipping God in your actions. You are offering all of your actions up as worship of the Lord. It's not so much what I'll get out of it. Swami Ranganathanandaji said, What is spirituality after all? Simplest definition of spirituality. Most practical. He said, Spirituality is, When I close my eyes, I find peace within. When I open my eyes, My attitude is, What can I do for you? With eyes open, What can I do for you? Here is the world. What can I give? What can I do? When I close my eyes, There is peace within. Our problem is just the opposite. Swami, when I close my eyes, All sorts of disturbance within. All sorts of thoughts, restlessness within. And when I open my eyes, not what I can do for you. What can I get from you? So this is just the opposite of spirituality. This is worldliness. So, unselfishness, to the extent that we can be unselfish, to that extent, mind will be relaxed and better focused. The focus which comes out of selfishness is a narrow band focus, which leads to unpleasantness and tension and frustration. Another insight. Love need leads to focus. So what I love, my mind automatically is drawn to that and easily focused without all sorts of techniques. You don't have to do this breathing technique, this thing and that thing. Uh, it automatically leads to um, focus there. So, so uh, for example, a mother in, in, in a house looking after the young child, right? So... Because the, chi- the mother loves the child, yes. because the mother loves the child, all activities are done. She's cleaning, cooking, um, taking care of the child's uh, homework, getting ready to take the child to school, and so on. All of that is being done, and yet the mind is focused on the child and the needs of the child, right? So love leads to leads to focus. Bhakti, devotion to God, leads to focus automatically and easily, without effort, effortlessly so. And one more thing. This is what we discussed today, no mind. When you realize that the, you are that one existence consciousness place and all of this world is your appearance then the mind remains calm and steady like the unflickering flame. Look at the mind of that prince, the story of the princess of Kashi the mind of the prince was disturbed and agitated you will say you will smile and say unnecessarily so for what? but that's exactly our condition unnecessarily so, so for what? One Swami put it very funnily, you know, he said, before we come to Advaita, our reaction to the world is, what? And after we get Advaita, our reaction is, so what? <laughs> so that calmness, that relaxed, focused, attitude, steady attitude comes from that, that is no mind. No mind is not not thinking, not shutting down the mind, that is no mind. So these are some of the ways. If you have, those who are discerning, you would have seen, I basically talked about karma yoga, bhakti yoga, raja yoga, and uh, jnana yoga. Yeah. These are the ways. Thanks. Thank you. Yes, come here. You're next. Yes, you, you're next. Just, just wait, there's somebody here. Hold on to your question, don't forget. My name is Girish. Yes. And uh, I was reviewing your lecture on uh, free will, and um, I had a
1: question on that, which is that, I mean, clearly it seems to me that the body mind
0: or the mind, uh, the human mind in the waking state, suffers the delusion of free will, but really is not the doer in any case. So it really, the mind, within the mind there is free will, but not anywhere else in the waking state. So, the opposite of free will is determinism, so in the waking state, in the, in the body, to the body-mind, is everything predetermined or is it undeterminable? It's oh, a deep one. <laughs> From an Advaitic point of view, there is freedom, not free will. Free will is a contradiction in terms. The moment you speak about will, will is always caused, and anything that is caused is determined is determined, already determined. So the point is that we seem to have free will. We feel that we have free will. Whether I will raise my hand or not right now, it seems to be it's my choice. Here, I have chosen. Here, I raised the hand. But really have I chosen? That thought that I will raise the hand, it bubbled up from somewhere deep inside my subconscious. Wasn't it also caused, if you put it under the scanner, uh, you will see that there was some neurological activity, neuronal activity, pre- which preceded my decision-taking. And, it, and I have already talked about the Benjamin Libet experiments, you know, where uh, they seem to show that there is neuronal activity, which our, even our so-called free will choices seem to be caused neuroscience, then philosophy, um, spirituality, the great spiritual masters, they all seem to say that it's God's will alone. Thy will be done. It's God's will which is working through everything, not ours. Not I, my lord, but, but thou. So science, um, science says everything. It's a deterministic universe, cause and effect. Um, Though I don't understand quantum mechanics so much, they say that quantum mechanics introduces a chance element there, an indeterminacy in this so-called strictly deterministic universe. Anyway, and um, philosophy, neuroscience, science, uh, that means physics, um, then your um, spirituality, all of them say that, they seem to be saying that your feeling of free will is an illusion. It seems to be, but it is not actually. And going beyond all of this, Advaita says, finally, there is freedom. You as Atman, you are free. But as a limited individual being, you do not have free will. So what, putting it all together, what does it come to? Uh, here I'm drawing upon Arindam, Professor Arindam Chakravati's article, which I mentioned earlier. He says, putting these three together, what are the three? We seem to have free will. Upon examination... By, science, by physics, neuroscience, um, philosophy, uh, spirituality, upon examination, it seems that we have no free will. And finally, the truth is ultimately we are free, though not free will. If you put these three together, what do you get? What you get is the wisest way of living, wisest way of using this appearance of free will is to... Um, surrender to the Lord, that I freely choose to surrender to the Lord. It is God's will that freely acknowledging that. You see, both things are there. I'm using my appearance of free will at the same time acknowledging that it is God's will. That is called surrender. It's a very beautiful resolution of this paradox. I've never found it anywhere else. The Professor Rendam Chakravati does that. Did I direct? You asked a question whether it is this feeling of free will here, is it, um, is it deterministic, or is it indeterminate? you're saying. Mm, that's right. Indeterminate would be, philosophically speaking, a more acceptable answer. Mm. Deterministic also doesn't seem to be quite right, because we have a strong feeling that it is not deterministic. Science says it has to be deterministic, at least at the, at the Newtonian level or something. Um, so I guess indeterministic because, Yeah. Brahman's intent is indeterminable Brahman, Saguna Brahman's intent is indeterminable because Nirguna Brahman the absolute has no intent the absolute just is in the Buddhist term Tathata suchness that has no intent but when you come to what you are saying intent that is at the level of the theistic God which is in Vedanta Saguna Brahman Ishwara oh by the way there is one free will in this entire universe. If you believe in religion, in God, in theistic religion, then God in every system has free will. God is free to do whatever he, she, it wants to do. But we are dependent on God. Yes. I guess that's the best I can do. (laughs) The lady there, come. I'll come to you. Please tell us your name and ask the question.
1: um my question is uh, brahman is beyond space and time hmm. and no matter how much we we want uh, we are limited by space and time and so is our our mind then how at what level or how we conceptualize Brahman who is beyond our limitation of space and time?
0: It's a pretty deep question. Brahman is beyond space and time. Our minds are limited by space, time and causation also. That's how our minds think. I will say two things here. First of all, the most important thing is not that Brahman is beyond space and time, You are beyond space and time because we distance ourselves from Brahman. There is some guy called Brahman who is beyond space and time but I am within space and time the other way around. How do I know that I am beyond space and time? It doesn't seem like that. Let me tell you. It will seem very clear. In your dream, suppose, a lot of time has passed. When you wake up, One instant of waking up and saying, oh, it was a dream. Those 10 years which passed in the dream and that one second of waking up, which is more powerful? Which is more powerful? The one second second of waking up. In knowledge, because that's knowledge. Knowledge is there. The 10 years passing in ignorance, that is is in dream, that is falsified by that one second of waking up. Not only that, that 10 years. Did you go through those 10 years or did those 10 years were dreamt up in your mind? You, didn't, you were not in that scale of time. That time was within you. All the space which you saw, the dif- distant lands you travelled to in your dream. You went by aeroplane so many places. Thousands of miles, kilometres you covered. The moment you wake up, In your little bedroom, in your bedroom, there's little little space. Which is more true, that little space or the thousands of miles you covered in an aeroplane in your dream? Which is more true? That little space? Not only that, that entirety of the thousands of miles you covered, distant lands you travelled through in your dream, all of that distance, that space was where? In your mind. Right? That time in the dream, that time in uh, the space in the dream, it was in you. You are not in it. So can I say you, the dreamer, you are beyond space and time, the dream space and dream time, you are beyond that, can I say? In what sense are you beyond time and space? That time and space is dreamt in you. Right? It's, you are not in it. That is in you. Now Gaurapada says, Mandukya says, Exactly like that. Only difference is that dream time and space was in your mind, the mind of the dreamer. This waking time and space is in your consciousness. Your consciousness is not in time and space. How? It seems to be very profound, but very difficult to get. Not very difficult to get. Somebody asked, you know in Uttarakhand in Himalayas there was a discussion going on The one of the Swami's was saying you are the all-pervading consciousness and I said, whoa wait 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 just a minute Swami let's take it slow what do you mean you are all-pervading it sounds cool and very new-agey but that Swami did not say that I'm saying it here for effect <laughs> but he asked the question he asked was very good look let me take it in a very simple way I don't understand all your difficult philosophy it seems to me, you see I am all pervading but it seems to me I am here and you are there, I am not even there let alone being all pervading, I am only here the usual answer if I ask you you have all studied Vedanta, you will say oh that's because you are identified with body and mind the body is here, that's why you think you are here instead of giving all those answers, the Swami the teacher answered so directly and beautifully he said the question was You are saying I am all pervading but I feel I am here, not there. And the answer with the Swami was ah, but here and there are both here and there not in your awareness. From the point of the body I am here and not there but here and there this whole concept of distance, separation all of this is appearing in my awareness. Take a stand as awareness you will see the universe is in you. Time is in you. Who notes the passage of time? Is time aware of you or are you aware of time? You are aware of time. Is space aware of you or are you aware of space? Space is in your awareness. It is experienced in your awareness. Time is experienced in your awareness. Causation is experienced in your awareness. That is the meaning of Brahman being beyond time and space and causation. It is in Brahman, in existence, consciousness, bliss, that time, space, and awareness, uh, time, space and causation are experienced. Now, a little more philosophical answer to your this this is something that you should feel, you should actually see. Passage of time, we normally think I am passing through space and time. Reverse it. I am the unchanging consciousness, unmoving consciousness through which time and space they appear, in which they appear move around and disappear. Which is more true, you will see even right now. This is a more truer account of your experience. All right, a more philosophical point of view. It is true that our mind is limited by time, space, and causation. That is why even our best accounts of Brahman, it also includes time and space. How? When I say Brahman is eternal, I've already accepted time. Right? When I say Brahman is all pervading, I've already accepted space. It's almost like there is time and Brahman lasts throughout time. But that's not true. Why do we say that? Because otherwise the mind operates in binaries. So you'll think, oh, Brahman is non-eternal. So Brahman is born and it dies like me. No. Not like you. Brahman is eternal. To cut out the wrong idea, misconception that Brahman is something born and dying. It is not non-eternal, it is eternal. But then you have to go one step forward. That even the concept of eternal and non-eternal, they are time concepts. Time is in Brahman. Brahman is not in time. Space also. When you say Brahman is all-pervading... It's like It sounds like here is a room, and I light incense, and incense pervades the room. So Brahman pervades all of space. There's space which exists, and Brahman is something smoky which pervades all of space. No, no, no. Why do we say that? In order to remove the misconception that Brahman is something limited. So do I find Brahman only in the temple, or in the pilgrimage place, or in heaven, or some other particular space? Some say in the cave of the heart here. There Brahman is, and nowhere else. No, Brahman is all-pervading, but actually, space is also in Brahman. And then we say, Brahman is everything, but you have accepted things then. Actually, even things do not exist. It's Brahman which appears as everything, but everything is not. Brahman alone is. That poem by Mary (laughs) Hale to Swami Vivekananda, she wrote a poem saying that, I have understood what you have taught. You have taught that everything is God. And Vivekananda said, I have never taught such strange doctrine, that everything is God. He said, you exactly said these things, everything is God. He said, no, what I mean is, God only is, everything is not. That is Advaita, that is no mind. It's not that that person is the prince as well as the princess of Kashi. No, no, the princess of Kashi is nothing other than that person. It's not that there are two persons, one prince and one princess of Kashi and that you are both of them. No, you are this person who appears as that. You are the consciousness appearing as subject and object. Vivekananda says, one, only, one alone exists, it appears as nature, soul. What he calls nature and soul, it's Sankhya terminology, Prakriti purusha What we just call subject-object. But one alone exists. We think we are the subject experiencing an object. <coughs> But actually you are both subject and object. You are neither. You are that one consciousness appearing as subject and object. So this is the answer to your question. If Brahman is beyond time and space, how can we conceive of Brahman? You are beyond time and space. Time and space are in you. Right now. You may choose not to accept it. And then say Brahman is beyond time and space. Second, All, you are right, mind is conditioned by time and space, so all our attempts at understanding Advaita are conditioned by time and space. Otherwise, we cannot speak. My thinking is in time and space, language is in time and space, so we have to use it. I think it is either, it is either, oh, it is in Mandukya Karika, Gaudapada himself says, Upadesha Adayam Vada, it's only to teach that we use such words. Actually, absolutely speaking, even these words are not true. The Advaita. Thank you. I'll come to you. Um, yes, can you, can you come out here? Who is next? Somebody else was raising the hand there. I'll come to you. Tell us your
1: name. My name is Shiva. Uh, my question is, why do we search for other alternative ways to think about God when we already have like simple uh, ways given by great souls? For example, as we have discussed in the lecture, the answers by Swami Ramakrishna Paramahamsa to the questions that M asked. Mm-hmm. So why can't we like constantly practice the simple ways given by them instead of...
0: Instead of becoming so complicated, Manduk and all of that, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, whatever seems simple and direct, good, good question, whatever seems simple and direct to you, we should take it up and practice it. The problem is, the mind has many questions. So a lot of it is designed to answer the questions in the mind. If you do not answer the questions in the mind, the mind will not allow you to go forward. A pure and simple mind, the direct instructions given by Sri Ramakrishna in the gospel, enough to take one to God realization. Somebody asked Sri Ramakrishna, give me religion, spirituality in one sentence. Wise person, otherwise he knows, otherwise Sri Ramakrishna will give you the gospel of Ramakrishna. uh, Several hundred pages. One sentence, I'm limiting you. And Sri Ramakrishna said, Brahman alone is real, the world is an appearance. He didn't even say you are Brahman. Brahma Satyam Jagat Brahman is real, world is an appearance. Then he said, assimilate this. Eti karu. And then Swami Brahmanda says, saying this, Sri Ramakrishna kept quiet. This is emphasized that he kept quiet. Kept quiet means that's all that needs to be said. If you want the entire instruction, that's enough. In the Gita, when Arjuna asked the questions, whatever Sri Krishna had to say, He said in the second chapter. Then why are there 16 more chapters, total 18 chapters? Why are there 16 more chapters? Because Arjun asked questions. I think by the 18th chapter, he said at the end, all my doubts are dispelled. Because by that time, he had learned. If I ask another question, the 19th chapter is going to start now. (laughs) So we have a Gita of 18 chapters. We have questions. And it's difficult to bypass those questions. I guess all these complex methods, the complexities in our minds, not in the method themselves. Also, depends on the person. To some person, this Advaitic approach will seem very straightforward. Simplest, direct method. Gaudapada says, Asparsha Yoga, non, method of non-contact. This is the most direct teaching. If that seems to be difficult, in, in Uttarakhand they say, jano ya mano, Either you understand it, you get it, realize it, or you believe it. If it's difficult, it seems too philosophical, too subtle, too complex, then all right, believe it. These are the two ways available to you. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Come. Yes.
1: Thank you. Uh, Ron Johnson. Um, question about uh, pure consciousness, Sachinanda, um Brahman. Is pure consciousness aware of change, aware of suffering, and if so, how is it? How is it that it does not change, or it does not suffer? I wouldn't say. Maybe I shouldn't say it, but. But I guess me or, or Brahman, how does Brahman not suffer? How does Brahman not change if it is aware of change and aware of suffering?
0: Right. Is pure consciousness aware of suffering? Remember, there are not two consciousnesses pure and impure, not like that. It is that one consciousness alone which functions through us. It's like asking Does electricity shine? Does electricity go round and round? Does electricity magnify sound? What will you answer? You say, yes, given the right device, given the right gadget, electricity does all of these things. But it's not natural to electricity. Electricity does not naturally shine without a bulb. It does not naturally go round and round and give you air without a fan. It will not amplify sound without a microphone. Similarly. When you ask consciousness, does it suffer? The answer will be exactly like that, yes and no. Yes, how? In conjunction with body and mind, it is open to suffering. Unaware of its real nature, in conjunction with body and mind, it experiences the suffering of body and mind, also is aware of others' suffering and is sympathetic to the sufferings of others. It's that one consciousness, but for that it requires the perp- the, the, the functioning of the mind and the senses and the body. What proof? Look at your own waking, dreaming and deep sleep. It's a very powerful paradigm. If consciousness is there in deep sleep, it, is not, it does not experience any suffering. Why? Mind does not function there. That's what we discussed today. Duality is not experienced in deep sleep because there is no subject-object. The subject-object division is set up by the functioning of the mind under ignorance. And then suffering is perceived. What Advaita does is, it shows you that underneath the subject and object, let the subject and object appear, let the body, mind and senses appear. Underneath that, in the background, it is all one reality. That knowledge of one reality, it will not solve your suffering. It will not cure disease, it will not cure poverty, but it will help you to transcend that suffering. You realize that I am indeed all of this. So that, so the pure consciousness in itself? No. There is no question of suffering because it is the only thing that exists. But when it divides itself into su- subject and object, when it appears in this way, then the possibility of suffering is there. Hmm? If you want a straight answer in one sentence, really speaking, does Turiya suffer? No. <laughs> Practically speaking, in, in appearance? Yes. Then what do we do? We, we realize that we are the Turiya and transcend the suffering which appears. That, that is the answer. See, the Buddha's quest was that there is suffering. Is there a way out of suffering? That there is suffering, there is no doubt about it. Vedanta and all of that comes later. But suffering is there, we experience it directly. How can we not say that we experience suffering? It is there. But... Vedanta dissolves that suffering. It does not solve it. It dissolves that suffering showing you something much greater in the background where there is no suffering, which you are. It transfers the reference of the I. Right now, if we say, I am this person, then I am open to all the sufferings of this person. Sufferings of body, sufferings of mind, social sufferings, all of that, I am open to it if I am just this person. But if I am that's one consciousness, which appears as the person in the world, then am I really suffering? Take the example of the dream, a nightmare. In the nightmare, is there suffering, when you don't recognize it as a nightmare? Oh, yes, there is. There is terror and anxiety, all vividly felt. When you wake up, you cannot deny that you felt that terror and anxiety. You can't deny it. You felt it. But then what happens? Why do you say? uh, Why do you breathe a sigh of relief and say, oh, it was just a nightmare? Why do you say that? You felt that terror. The very knowledge that it did not really happen, that's a great thing. Even though I felt it, it's still not real. It's like watching a horror movie, feeling the horror, jumping up in horror, but at the same time knowing constantly that because it's not real, it's okay, it's okay. Not only is it okay, it's fun too. Yeah. Right. All right, we have the youngest questioner ever. Pratham, <laughs> come. Oh, he's sometimes got the best questions. To tell the name to the microphone and then ask ask your question.
1: My name is Pratham Chakraborty and my question is if Sri Ramakrishna was Rama and Krishna. Why would he, um, why would he begging and crying to see Mother Kali, even though inside him there's a, there's two gods? But why would he, why would he cry to see Mother Kali? <laughs>
0: that's a, that's a good, good question, and Pratham, you've got me there. <laughs> the answer which comes to my mind is, of course, it's a, the answer is in your question. Within him is Rama and Krishna, but the third one is Kali. So he wanted that one too. That's why... Now I'm being funny. Remember, because it's it's an avatar of God, an incarnation of God. So the incarnations come to teach us. How shall we realize God? How shall we attain God-realization? And he demonstrates it. So he's showing us how to attain God-realization. That's why he cries to Kali, he prays and he meditates, all of that, worships, all of that he does. Though actually he is God. So he's showing us how to attain God. And he himself said, in Bengali, Mother is there and the devotee, child of the mother, both are there in this. Which means he's reporting something very, very unique. Sometimes he acts just as a man, as a human being. And sometimes his actions and speech are absolutely divine. Extraordinary. So this, what Pratham has asked is the paradox of the incarnation, avatara. Is the incarnation God or man? Both. Both. If In the incarnation were only God, then the man aspect, the human aspect would be play-acting. That's not very useful for us. That person must actually feel the suffering like a human being. And then come up from that, be a bridge from the human to the divine. Then it works for us. If that person is just human, then all right, we would re- revere him as another sage or a sadhu. Many people did. They thought he was a great sage, a great sadhu. Many people also thought he was quite mad. All right, Pratham, thank you. Bill? All right, you don't have to come out. Just tell us question. I'll repeat your question here.
1: I have two comments, that I'd like your reaction
0: to them. Yes.
1: In, in the story of the princess of Kashi, I guess it's a symbolic story, but the prince's problem really wasn't solved because he still wanted to marry. He just didn't want to marry the princess of Kashi anymore. So it, it didn't really resolve his, his desire for, for marriage, say. Oh. No, it just that particular object. No yes. longer
0: was desirable. Hmm. All right, the question uh, Bill is asking is in the story of Princess of Kashi, um, the prince realized that there is no Princess of Kashi, so there's no question of marrying the Princess of Kashi, but his desire to marry still remained. It doesn't resolve that problem. Remember, it's an example. Don't stretch the example beyond what it's supposed to show. <laughs> You could say that if he actually did marry the princess of Kashi, it would have resulted in a good alliance between the two kingdoms. <laughs> and one more royal wedding would have done wonders for ratings for, the, for, the, for all the, the networks and everything. So it would have been good, you know, if he had married the princess of Kashi. No, but you cannot stretch the examples beyond what they want to show. So Sri Ramakrishna also says, Upama Agdeshi, examples are meant to prove a point. Remember, it's not about Kashi or the princess of Kashi or about the prince. None of that matters. It's about Brahman and the world. So the whole world is an appearance of Brahman. And you are Brahman. If you realize that, it solves all the problems. Because it's not just one object which is an appearance. The entire universe is your appearance. Now what object will you desire? Or what will you hate? As Vivekananda said, whom to praise or wh- whom to uh, blame? with praiser, praised and blamer and blamed are but one. Yeah. If, it, if it falsifies one object, then your question is valid. But if it falsifies everything in the universe, it shows, instead of saying falsifies, some people don't like that language of falsity. If you say that the entire universe is your own radiance, you are shining forth as the universe. You are one with the universe. Then is there anything in the universe which you need to add to yourself? No, you are the infinite. What will you desire? What will you hate? You are one with the entire universe. That feeling of oneness will come very strongly upon you. That's the, that's the question. Yes?
1: But I have a second comment.
0: All right, second comment, yes. In Ramakrishna's answer <clears> to <throat> M's
1: question, how can I concentrate my mind,
0: On God, yes. On
1: God. The the third point was discrimination. Hmm. And it's interesting, the Ramakrishan doesn't say discriminate between the real and the unreal. He says discriminate between the permanent and the impermanent. Yes. And that actually is a lot easier to do. And this other thing is very philosophical, is the world real or not? Yes. But we do know it's transitory.
0: All right. Here's a good question that Bill has uh, raised. He says, Sri Ramakrishna said discriminate between viveka discriminate between nitya and anitya the eternal and non-eternal the transient and the eternal he did not say between satya and mitya, real and false in fact when you start vedanta the fourfold qualifications viveka vairagya the sixfold treasures Shamadamadhi, shatsampatti and the Desire for liberation. The first one is viveka, and how is viveka defined? The standard textbooks of Advaita, like uh, Vedanta Sara, they define viveka as nitya nitya viveka, the discrimination between the eternal and non-eternal, not real and false, because they know real and false is a very philosophical concept and it's not easy to come by. It comes much later. You have to read a lot and study a lot of Advaita even to formulate what do you mean by real? What do you mean by false? Even the concept of false people have is not technically correct. You need a lot of um, uh, philosophical training before you come to a precise understanding of what is meant by falsity in Advaita. Mithyatva in Advaita is a technical term. It has a specific meaning. So as you said, things are transitory in the world. Everybody knows that. And we, yet we choose not to dwell on that fact. So dwell on that fact. That everything changes. And Buddha said, all compounded things decay. Right? That almost his last words. Work out your own salvation with diligence. Be a light unto yourself. He said to Ananda, all compounded things decay. Everything falls apart. All compounded things. Everything in this universe. So transitory. And the Buddha did not say that there is something eternal, you have to search for that. He just said that, note that uh, the changing nature, the flux nature of the universe, dwell on that, you will go to nirvana. But of course, is nirvana eternal or non-eternal? It's eternal. Nirvana cannot be non-eternal. One second, then no no nirvana again. It's not worth it. Yeah, in deeper sense, in in the um, if you investigate Buddhist philosophy more deeply, it's beyond the categories of eternal and non-eternal. Actually, Nirvana, just like Brahman, is beyond um, this uh, time. So yes, that's the place to begin. But your question, my I know I don't know if it's your question, but my you know my mind is that always puts forward this question: What is the relationship between eternal, non-eternal, on one hand? and real and false on the other. What's the relationship? How do you make the jump? Just because something is non-eternal, temporary, doesn't mean it's not real. That's, what, that's our reaction. All of this, all of this, it is non-eternal, we know. And yes, of course, we're very, very soon going to bring the session to a close. It's non-eternal, luckily. Otherwise, you'd go hungry for a very long time if it's an eternal Vedanta session. <laughs> By the way, let me know when they are, re- OK. I think people are hungry. I, I, I saw many hands raised with this. <laughs> Food is ready. But let me uh, end it with this very philosophical note, but a very interesting. I find it extraordinarily interesting. And some people find it scary. From the well-accepted fact of the things change, things born and die, from this fact to going to the things are false, their illusions, their appearances. I will show you right now, how it, how it works. We think, these things, I know they are created, flower is, it, it blossoms, and then we put it here, then it will dry up and it will be thrown away. So it is non-eternal. So is this class, events are non-eternal. Human beings are non-eternal, we are born, and we die, but do we say they are false? No. They are real, but only for a period of time, they last for a period of time. During that time, after the birth and before death, they are real. After production, before destruction, they are real. Now, Vedanta says, follow this carefully. It's like this. There is something called intrinsic property and borrowed property. Intrinsic property is that which belongs to you. And borrowed property is that which belongs to somebody else, but you have borrowed it for the time being and using it now. Somebody said, these days it's very difficult to find out who is rich and not, because everybody borrows so much and they spend like they're rich, (laughs) especially in this city. So they're very well dressed and have fancy cars, and um, they go to fancy restaurants, but they might not be particularly rich. They are living on, on credit cards. Very soon Wells Fargo is going to catch them. So that money, that luxury... That's borrowed. It's not intrinsic to that person. What is the sign that something is borrowed? It comes and goes. So the example is, um, they give, of of boiling a potato. Hot potato. But is the hot potato really hot? No. Because it was cold earlier, and once you put it on the dish and serve it, after some time it will become cold again. Its heat is borrowed. Where is its heat borrowed from? The boiling water. Is the boiling water intrinsically hot? No. Its heat is borrowed. Where is it borrowed from? The, uh, directly you can't put water on the fire. It will put the fire out or the water will become steam. The bowl, the, the pan or whatever. Is the pan intrinsically hot? No. It borrows its heat from the fire. The pan was cold earlier, becomes hot and then becomes cold again. The water was cold earlier, boils in between and then becomes cold again. The potato was was cold earlier, becomes hot and becomes cold later on. All because heat is borrowed. But from where? From the fire. Let me ask you, is the fire intrinsically hot? As long as the fire lasts, it's hot. The fire is hot because heat is the intrinsic property of fire in a very commonsensical way, let's say because it does not come and because it's intrinsic it does not come and go it belongs to the fire itself as long as fire is there it is hot now let me ask you a question if something has existence as an intrinsic property what will happen to it if something does not have existence as an intrinsic property if it borrows existence what will happen to it it will die it will be born the moment it borrows existence what will happen Just like a person borrowing money. Poor person, not rich. Suddenly borrowing money, rich. Not existent. Borrowing existent, existent. Comes into existence. When it loses existence again, what will happen to it? It will die. It will be destroyed. It will go out of existence. That means, bring it all together, impermanence is a sign of borrowed existence. Are you with me? If there is any such thing as borrowed existence, impermanence is a sign of borrowed existence. Now, everything in the world is impermanent. It has borrowed existence from somewhere. That podium is impermanent. It has borrowed its existence from the wood. The wood is impermanent. It has borrowed its existence from the earth material, the earth The earth is impermanent. It has borrowed its existence from the constituent materials, atoms and all of that and so on. If something does not borrow existence, what will happen to it? If something borrows existence, it will be born, it will die. If something does not borrow existence, has intrinsic existence, what will happen to it? It will be eternal in the sense it will never come into existence. It will never go out of existence because it has intrinsic existence. That is the very concept of sat of Brahman. That which has intrinsic existence, which is existence itself, being itself. You cannot even conceive of it being not being, not existence. Everything else borrows existence from Brahman for a time being and appears to exist. But all the while Brahman is holding it up. Just like this borrows existence from wood. Because it's wood through and through. And the name and form of the podium is held up by wood as it were. A wave as long as it exists. It borrows existence from the water. Because without the water no wave. Without the wood no podium. Without Brahman no universe. The sign that the universe has borrowed, everything in the universe has borrowed existence is because it comes into existence and disappears. It is born and it dies. It is temporary. So this temporariness is a sign of borrowing existence. It's not really rich on existence. It's Brahman which is a billionaire on existence. I'll come to you. This borrowed existence is exactly what Vedanta calls falsity, mithya. So the very temporariness, the, the non-eternality of things, the changing nature of things, points to the falsity of things. In Vedanta it is called mithya, in Buddhism it is called interdependence. It's called interdependence. They are not intrinsically existent. They are devoid of self-existence. In, in Buddhism it is called shunyata. Shunyata sarvabhavanam All entities are devoid of self-existence. In Vedanta, it says all entities are appearances; they have borrowed their existence from the real. We'll take it up to lunch because lunch is also temporary; it's borrowed existence. (laughs) All right. Om Shanti Shanti Shanti. Harihi Om Tat Sat Shri Rama Krishna